Hey, Andrew here. If you uh, haven't listened to Monad 1, What is a Monad?, then you might be a little bit confused about the naming of the episodes on the podcast. So what I've done is I have some shorter and less highly produced episodes that I'm calling monads, and that's what you're about to hear. But the episodes that I was the most obsessive about and put the most effort and time into, I'm calling those episodes full episodes as part of a full season So go to the seasonal episodes if you want to hear Reductio at its best. But if you want to hear me kind of playing around with the medium and and playing around with ideas uh, that I find interesting in in a little bit shorter and more informal format, uh, then listen to the monads. I hope you enjoy. Reductio Adventures and Ideas. I'm your host, Andrew Lavin. Reductio is a show about philosophy, about ideas, and about understanding ourselves and our world more clearly. Brought to you by Inverted Spectrum Media. As you drive north from San Francisco, You would dismiss the exit I usually take to get home as just some backwater road to nowhere. The sign says Bayless Road 39, and it's just a country road that leads past rice fields, riparian forest, a Carnegie library in the impossibly small town of Bayless, the other impossibly small town of Ord Bend, and acres of orchard. To me, of course, these are all signs that I'm getting close to home, to Chico, California. Upon entering Chico from the west, you're on 5th Street. Take that all the way through the South Campus neighborhood past the university, and you're in downtown Chico. Take a right at Broadway and loop around at 8th Street, and you'll finally be at a local favorite, lovingly called simply The Co-op, or its more official name, Chico Natural Foods. My name is Lori Niles, and I am presently the board president at Chico Natural Foods Cooperative. So I sat down with Lori Niles recently because I'm really interested in the co-op model. And I was interested in the Chico co-op because it wears its status on its sleeve, but there are actually lots of different co-ops. So cooperatives like REI is a cooperative. um, Hardware stores are cooperatives. Ours is in selling the, the healthiest local product in this community. Cooperatives are a very fascinating structure. So I was curious what sort of motivation there is behind becoming a co-op rather than just starting a a run-of-the-mill for-profit business. Not to sound really basic, but I think it's that where where are you coming from in life? It's a different walk that what you're investing in is is something that's owned by the people and similar in similar makeup how you can have an agricultural co-op, a finance co-op, a childcare co-op, educational co-op a worker co-op, um, they're, they're about the people that are, that are owning it. So co-ops are really interesting because they're inherently democratic in that the ownership and the governance of the co-op is a large group of people that are essentially on even footing when it comes to voting power. There's a group of people, about 3,000 in the case of Chico Natural Foods, that have a share of ownership in the business. You own a brick and mortar. I mean, you you do. There is nobody else that's coming in and saying this needs to go away. 
because the collective of those 3,000 people own it. Right. And that's, I think, a, kind of a, a really powerful thing if you sit, you know, step back, especially in this day and age. Owning and investing in a local business, even at a fairly small scale, makes you part of the community in a deeper and richer way. This is investment done right. It's, it's putting your resources towards a venture you believe in and taking a stake in the success or failure of local institutions. There's the economic member participation, hence the $20 membership. That money goes and is part of the working capital for the um, co-op. If we want to raise money for a, a growth or an expansion, we look to our membership mm -hmm. to invest in its own business, mm -hmm. you know, because you own a brick and mortar. Right. Whereas I don't know of any other store has ever asked me for my money to grow their business. The co-op becomes this sort of public institution, but it's not a government institution. It's one that's owned and operated by private citizens, but a large enough group of them such that the purpose of the business isn't about the enrichment of one individual or even a small group of individuals, and decisions about how the business is run are at least accountable to a large group of people. So a core value of a co-op is democracy, where the power and benefits of an institution rest in the hands of a large group of people rather than in the hands of a few wealthy owners. It's democratically controlled. So, for instance, the board is elected. Uh, if we change our bylaws, that's something that is put forth to the membership to vote on. I would imagine that there would be more of this in the future, people kind of claiming back mm -hmm. as opposed to giving away their if you, power, for lack of a better mm -hmm. word. Co-ops are a way of putting control over businesses directly in the hands of people rather than merely indirectly through unionizing or through voting with our dollars and so on, like you have in the for-profit economy. So we'll get back to co-ops in a second, and you will see where I'm going with this, but let me go on a little rant first. One of the most frustrating aspects of public discourse to me today is the tendency for people to sort themselves into binaries. Conservative versus liberal, big government versus small government, pro-gun versus anti-gun, pro-choice versus pro-life. These binaries don't move our discourse or mutual understanding forward. Instead, they prop up a really toxic political system based on having two dominant parties constantly at odds with one another. These binaries do one thing that's frustrating. They don't describe people's actual political preferences well at all. Most of the conservatives I know actually have little in common with Rush Limbaugh or Alex Jones, but they're both called quote-unquote conservatives. Similarly, lots of people on the left don't actually have that much in common, but they're all called quote-unquote liberals, as if it captures real commonality, when in fact, on reflection, they would disagree quite strongly about a lot of things, and perhaps would disagree even more than they agreed. The political binaries don't describe the world very well, and for that reason, they aren't terribly useful. Another thing that these binaries do, in addition to just describing people's political convictions poorly, is that they actually change people's political convictions. They change the political landscape 
and the shift in landscape causes folks to slide into one of only two camps and to align their thinking with others in those camps. This is a far more serious problem. To work through a thought experiment, if someone, let's call her Aisha, thinks pretty clearly that women should have the right to choose whether or not to use their bodies to gestate a living creature, whether or not to be pregnant for nine months, but either doesn't have strong convictions in other parts of the political arena or has somewhat conservative views on other issues, she'll likely, the way things work now, become fired up about her conviction about abortion rights, start to identify as a feminist because she sees that feminists tend to make pro-choice arguments, and then hear other quote-unquote liberal positions and arguments by virtue of being connected with others with whom she agrees about abortion rights. This is all fairly natural at this point. What happens, though, is that Aisha starts to identify as left of center, and suddenly it starts to feel very strange to her to have a conservative conception of marriage when she identifies with the camp that is affirming of gay marriage. Then her ideas about having limited government start to feel out of step with people with whom she identifies, and she starts to have a different conception of the role of government in society. This is increasingly problematic because people don't feel free to have political opinions about different issues that don't fit into one of two molds. And those two molds are weird, contingent, or kind of arbitrary groupings in the first place. There's little in the quote-unquote liberal worldview that really fits together, just like there's no real unifying theme to conservative issues like lower taxes and being against state affirmation of gay marriage. There's like no connection at all between these two issues. I really meant it when I said earlier that these binaries change the political landscape. A landscape is a set of slopes that push things downhill thanks to gravity. Rain falls on a landscape, and there's all this pressure for the water to move downhill in the most direct path possible. If you imagine a landscape with only two basins, there'd be a lot of pressure to move quote-unquote downhill towards the bottom of the nearest basin. This is directly analogous to being a bit left of center or a bit right of center. You'll tend towards a homogeneous conservatism or a homogeneous liberalism, even if you didn't start out ready to sign on to all the platforms and positions of the side you end up identifying with. There's also this other issue, which I won't get into just yet, about how we tend to see the political spectrum along a single dimension. But this makes no sense, since libertarians in theory have exactly as much in common with liberals as they do with conservatives. Where do they belong on a single left-to-right continuum? Not really in the middle in any meaningful sense. Anyways, a topic for another day. Okay, so this brings me to the topic I really want to discuss. The apparent dichotomy between capitalism on the one hand and communism or what sometimes gets called socialism on the other hand. There's no dichotomy here. How do I know? Well, simple. A dichotomy means that one must choose either one or the other, and this simply isn't true. The communism I'll be talking about here is the communism of the popular American imagination, the one that actually took hold in the USSR, in Cuba, in China, and so on. It is emphatically not the kind of communism that Karl Marx thinks will come about. I think these are very different systems. Another topic for another day.
The communism I'll be discussing is one where the state owns the means of production, like the roads, the factories, the tools, the raw materials, and so on, and furthermore that the state decides what gets made, how much gets made, who works where, etc. So there's a lot of central planning involved in this version of communism. The capitalism I'll be discussing is one where private individuals own the means of production, maybe with just a few exceptions like roads and the like. Those private individuals decide what gets made, how much gets made, who works where, and so on. There's virtually no central planning involved in this version of capitalism, where central planning is supposed to be government planning. These are both economic systems, not political systems. A political system is primarily a means of allocating the power to enact legislation or decide policy. A democracy places the power in the hands of the people or demos, a republic places this power in the hands of elected officials. An oligarchy places this power in the hands of an unelected few. A monarchy or totalitarian system places all this power in the hands of one individual. These are all political systems. That's not what we're talking about today. We're talking about economic systems, or systems for deciding what we produce as a society and how to distribute goods in a society. So most people have this idea that you're either a capitalist or a communist. You have to decide. Do you think capitalism is basically the best thing available, or do you think communism is a better alternative? This is a load of baloney. Baloney, just like pronouncing Bologna, baloney. There's at least one other option. I'm actually fairly tempted to think that there's a veritable cornucopia of options available. And so talk as if there's only two is silliness in the extreme. Erroneous. Erroneous on both counts. I'd like to prove that this dichotomy is baloney by simply articulating the basics of a different system. This is decidedly a better system than both capitalism and communism as I've described them. But that's like my opinion, man. I've thought about different names for this system, and I think cooperatism might be the best, most descriptive name for it. At one point I wanted to call it farmer's market capitalism, but it's not really capitalism, so that doesn't quite work. The basic idea, though, springs from what I find so inspiring and heartwarming about a farmer's market. A lot of the sellers there, and often the market organization itself, are co-ops. Cooperatism takes the co-op model and extends it to everywhere in the economic system. Bezos should be very afraid. So the idea is that we don't like totalitarianism when it comes to political entities like governments, but we tolerate totalitarianism when it comes to companies like Amazon. They can throw their mass around as one of the largest employers in the world and dictate to their employees what the terms of their employment will be. Companies can tell you where to live, how to dress, I remember being cross when I was in college working for Safeway and being told that I couldn't grow facial hair. Corporations decide so much of their employees' lives that if they were a government, they would surely be called despots. Why do we put up with this? Cooperatism is the system that refuses to put up with it by turning everything larger than a very small business, let's say two million in receipts per year, into a co-op. It is run by a board that is elected by the members of the co-op and the co-op membership consists of all the employees and then some. Running a company is running an important part of the economy and deciding how lots of public resources are going to get utilized. 
So it only makes sense to make sure everyone who has a stake in the company has ownership of and some small measure of control over how the company runs. This system democratizes something that has historically been a matter of dictatorship, genetic inheritance, and rule by fiat. The large company should be a co-op because it is in some sense just that, a cooperative venture that a bunch of folks invest their lives in. There's a lot of virtue to a system like this. If Google, say, decides to start selling its self-driving software to military drone tank programs, and the employees of Google think this is immoral or at least a bad idea, they would have actual control over whether or not this takes place. The executives don't get to sit in their insulated tribunal and make all of the decisions. Instead, the executives are always answerable to the employees. If they make a decision the employees disagree with, they'll have to make their case or risk being voted out of office. There wouldn't be near the amount of income inequality, nor would there be exorbitant bonuses in the system, since everyone who has a stake, employees, contractors, investors, all get a say in who gets what in terms of excess funds. There wouldn't be a 40-hour work week or ultra-restrictive vacation allotment either. These reforms would come about naturally without any laws demanding that people get paid fairly or get given the freedom to live fulfilled and happy lives. There's also room in this system for small businesses to thrive. You don't have to give up control of your business at very small scales. If you decide to expand, though, then you have to cooperatize and give up some measure of control. Instead of rich individuals deciding virtually everything about your life, and instead of the government doing the same, you'd be part of a co-op in which you would have some say. If you aren't making enough money, you'd simply appeal to your co-workers, co-owners of the company, and start a campaign you'd have a relatively large share of power, too. Think about how powerless we all feel in a country with over 300 million citizens. Imagine if that country only had 5,000 citizens, or even better, 200 citizens. That's a lot of power over who is at the reins. A lot of this comes out of a conviction that is power imbalances that breed a lot of the evils we see around us. The Me Too movement started with and continues to focus on cases where primarily men were abusing the almost absolute power they had over other human beings, mostly women. Power corrupts. And absolute power corrupts absolutely. Bad bosses, abuses of power in academia, abuses of citizens by the police, all of these things stem, it seems, from too much power and not enough accountability given to people. Cooperatism still gives a good amount of executive power to individuals at the top of an organizational chart, and in that way maintains some of the virtues of flexibility and nimbleness of a privatized market economy. But these people would be accountable directly to the person who cleans the toilets. Better not leave a mess in those executive bathrooms. Lori Niles of the Chico Co-op again on what recourse there is if a member of the co-op has a grievance or wants to challenge a decision of the board or the store management. Well, knock on wood. I, let me th think in our bylaws what would address that. I think you can, you know, submit your grievance and you get so many signatures. It can become a petition. Um, and then the, the ownership can vote on it. So if that's a recall of a person or of a decision that's been made, that would there would be a process to address it. And, you know, a step before that, of course, is, you know, there's the suggestion box, and you get the feedback from that, and then it's contacting the board that then 
you know, directs it towards the GM, and then the GM brings it to the uh, the correct person in which department. Or if it's with the board, then it's come to a board meeting and state it forth, and let's see where we go. Furthermore, a lot of this comes from the conviction that inheriting control over a company makes exactly as much sense as inheriting political power as does a king or queen. No sense at all. One's progenitor being a capable leader of a company has little of any connection at all to oneself being the best person to take over when they retire. The people who already have a stake in the company should have a say in who next leads them, not genetics. Another thought is that it seems really good to have something like Verizon creating this really powerful and extensive communications network. The government likely wouldn't do as good of a job. But it also doesn't seem good that Verizon has limited competition and is run by an oligarchy. If it were itself a democratic entity, then it could be quite large without there being the extreme power imbalance between something like Verizon or Time Warner or Xfinity and the consumer or their employee. These power imbalances are bad, but non-governmental entities aren't themselves inherently bad, nor are markets. The idea here is to take what's good about markets and private entities, but make them into entities that exist for the good of the community as a whole, but at the very least for the good of all the stakeholders in that entity, like employees and contractors. Companies shouldn't exist for the good of owners and investors alone. So to recount, capitalism is the system where private individuals privately own the concrete and intellectual infrastructure necessary to do most of the work done in society. They get to make all the decisions over this infrastructure, how it's used, and by whom, and what people get paid to use it. Much like you get to do whatever you want to your own car. If you want to paint it all sorts of funny colors, then you go right ahead, you own it. Same thing with a company. If you want to fire a bunch of folks so you can buy a new yacht, then go for it. If you want to harass your underlings, very little real accountability because it's your company and you can do what you want. Communism is the system where the government owns and maintains control over the concrete and intellectual infrastructure necessary to do most of the work in society. State officials make all of the decisions over this infrastructure, how it's used and by whom, and what people receive in exchange for their labor. The government in the U.S. today gets to decide who uses roads and whether they have to pay to use them. In a communist system, the government gets to decide who uses what tools, factories, raw materials, and so on, in addition to the roads. Whether or not there is accountability in the system depends on the political system it's coupled with. Historically, it's always been coupled with some form of oligarchy, totalitarian dictatorship, or the like. It doesn't need to be, though. A communist system could be a democratic one. There's no contradiction there. Cooperatism is a much better system where co-ops own and maintain control over the means of production, the infrastructure and goods that allow work to happen. Co-ops made up of all the employees, contractors, investors, and founders of a company. The system essentially takes the co-op model and extends it into the corporate sector. There are other aspects of my ideal economic system that involve ways in which the government steps in to ensure that markets of all kinds work well, labor markets in particular. It makes almost no sense to have our health insurance tied to our employment, and it came about by historical accident anyways. 
there's really no reason for most fringe benefits in general, since they're all basic facts of life for everyone. Everyone gets sick, everyone needs to retire someday. If we decouple healthcare and employment, then we remove the bad incentive that some people have to stay in unhealthy, abusive, or unhappy work. If you have healthcare and retirement no matter where you work, then the labor market is a much more just place. So this isn't strictly tied to cooperatism. You could have a cooperative system that nevertheless doesn't have socialized health insurance and retirement. It wouldn't be my version of cooperatism, but it still technically is in the same family as my system. I also think there should be hard floors and ceilings of how much income and wealth one should have control over as a function of a percentage of the total wealth of a society. A little inequality might be acceptable, but honestly not that much in my book. Another way of dealing with this is to govern not outcomes, not actual effective wealth, but to put limits on things like returns on investment. No one can make, say, more than 20% on an investment. A 20% return on an investment is ridiculously high. I'm stoked to make 2% in our savings account. Why should people be out there taking what really amount to very small risks to their livelihood and raking in much more than 100% profits? One way of putting this is that there shouldn't be profits. There are only reasonable returns on investments. Again, this is separable from cooperatism. You could have a cooperatism with no limits on wealth or poverty, but that's not the cooperatism I'm championing here. I want to return to my conversation with Lori Niles from the Chico Co-op. I asked her to think about how things would be different if a co-op was a massive undertaking like Verizon, where the ownership was more like tens of thousands of people rather than like 3,000 as it is in Chico. So um, I would assume that the participation would still be relative, you know. We still have a small participation rate. You know, within the election process, everyone's welcome to and encouraged to elect. So now you're, you're really trying to reach out and you're really trying to amass 20,000 people to participate. Uh, I would say that as a board, you are on your game. Uh, that would be a fast-moving pace. So you still have some of the problems that plague a democratic form of government that simply repeat themselves at the level of an organization like the co-op. The thought of trying to have a seven board represent 20,000 people. What happens if there's a disgruntled individual owner and they, how does that play out? You have to have all those the details, all the processes in place of how to address all those things before you start growing, right. which is good. I mean, I think that's what Chico Natural has done over time is like, okay, now let's update the policies, let's update these things so that they're current. Otherwise, that would not be good. The upshot here, as, as I see it, is that a co-op would need to have its own sort of constitution. It's called its bylaws, which determine at least at coarse grain what procedures there are for challenging power, for bringing grievances, for distributing and balancing power within the organization, and for dealing with many of the sort of worst-case scenarios within the organization. Lori recalled a time when there was a little bit of tension in the Chico co-op. I wasn't on the board at the time. I attended one of the meetings, but when Chico Natural Foods, when it decided to bring in frozen meat, there was a lot of a lot of meeting, a lot of discussion about it. It went to a vote, it passed, and so 
you know, the people who showed up at the meetings were those who did not want, mm-hmm. and the people who voted mm-hmm. were the ones that did want. Mm-hmm. But I think that was one of those, okay, how do, what do we do? Right. And we put it to a vote. So one thing I get out of this story is that the benefit of democracy is that a large group of people get a say in the final policy, not just the most vocal or passionate. The downside of democracy is that you often get a situation where the most vocal or passionate are looking for an exchange of ideas and people don't really want to engage. They just want to vote according to their gut intuition about the issue. You might not actually get that exchange of ideas that in the classical sense a liberal democracy is sort of built on. Let's be honest, co-opt will inherit many of the vices of Republican democracy, of a system where elected leaders attempt to represent the will of a large collective of people. Those vices aren't going to be magicked away here. Instead, we're attempting to use the virtues of such a system to work against oppression in the workplace and other evils of capitalism. One difference between the way the Chico Co-op runs and the way cooperatism would run is that the Chico Co-op membership is actually open. You have voluntary and open membership. It's open to anybody. You don't have to be a certain anything. Um, At Chico Natural Foods, it's $20 a year to be an owner. You have that. You're welcome to join. In cooperatism, alternatively, ownership is determined by who actually has a clear stake in the direction an organization goes. So this includes management and employees, but also individual contractors, lessers, and other stakeholders in the organization. So not everyone can buy into Verizon, let's say, and and have a say in how the company's run. You have to be a stakeholder of some kind in the company, and then you automatically have a say without any financial buy-in. There's a little bit of work that needs to be done on, you know, how you raise capital and then what sort of what sort of say the capital investors have in the way a business is run. Um, I haven't worked out all the details, nor am I likely the person who is going to work out all those details. The reason that cooperatism is built on restricted ownership is that cooperatism is about empowering workers. And so putting the quote-unquote political power behind decisions about how a company is run primarily in the hands of the workers. But the obvious solution to this from a management perspective is, is just not to hire workers. We've disincentivized hiring workers, and so companies can just hire contractors. So to patch up the loophole, individual contractors become owners as well. This gets us around that loophole. But then you might have a relatively small group of people who are primarily concerned with enriching themselves rather than the public good. So perhaps we need representations from cities or neighborhoods or geographic regions having a say in things. Not a controlling say, mind you, but a say nonetheless. The goal of cooperatism is to create accountability everywhere in society, like there is at least supposed to be in government institutions. But in cooperatizing large corporations, we need not sacrifice the efficiency or competitiveness that large corporations offer, the the virtues of large corporations. Nor need we socialize these institutions by having the government take over their operations. Instead, we just need to ensure that they are democratic institutions that have distributed wealth potential. 
and to ensure that all the actual stakeholders have a say in those democratic institutions. Then we at least create conditions within which these institutions can serve the public good and have safeguards against being like Amazon, where they exist to serve and follow the whims of essentially just one man, or at best a small group of very wealthy individuals. In fact, as I'm producing this monad, something really dramatic is happening where the CEOs of a number of corporations, uh, very large corporations, have essentially moved back in the direction of what's called stakeholder theory, the idea that everyone who is affected directly by the actions of a corporation should be on the minds of people and should be explicitly taken into account when the decision makers behind those corporations make their decisions. So at least since around the 80s, we've had a view where, where corporations are supposed to maximize profit, and that's their only explicit goal. In fact, it's called mismanagement when they don't maximize profit, even if that means taking good care of their workers instead. And so recently, these CEOs have said, we actually have an obligation to care for all the stakeholders of a company, not just to maximize profit and therefore not just to take care of the capital investors in the firm. This seems obviously like a step in the right direction. I'm very cynical, especially when it comes to the actions of CEOs and large corporations, but maybe a little optimism is called for. I guess the most important point is that this is just not enough to have some CEOs just say like, hey, we've got your best interests in mind. Hasn't really gone well in the past. We've never really been able to trust the CEOs of corporations before. I don't see why we should start trusting them now. So cooperatism is in some respects an attempt to institutionalize and formalize the ideas behind stakeholder theory, where all the stakeholders in a company should have a say in decisions governing that organization or that corporation, but also should have ownership over that corporation. So the goal here was not so much to convince you that cooperatism is the way of the future, although I am very sympathetic to it. The goal here was especially just to point out that the dichotomies that we use in our political discourse, especially the one between socialism and communism on one hand and capitalism on the other hand, uh, those dichotomies simply don't serve us. There are many more options than just communism and capitalism. There aren't only two economic systems. There are countless we only talk about two, even worse than that, we talk about like 50 different systems as if they were just versions of two overarching systems. It's simply not true. And it's simply not true that we have to choose between being ruled by rich people or being ruled by rich politicians or oligarchs. I say a pox on both houses. Don't buy the rhetoric that pretends that the only alternative to capitalism is totalitarian communism. We could go with democratic communism or cooperatism 
or a system called distributism defended by G.K. Chesterton. I'll link to an article in the show notes. Or some kind of aristocratic, meaning rule by the best, communism. Or a cooperatism that is aristocratic or meritocratic rather than democratic. Or the list goes on. Don't let the politicians box you up. You're far too interesting to fit into a nice, neat little box. Thanks, as always, for listening. Thank you so much to Lori Niles of the Chico Co-op for sitting down and talking with me. I really appreciate your time. Please consider throwing a dollar a month our way at www.patreon.com slash reductio. Thank you so much to current patrons Robert Jones, Cooey Gray Lavin, Luke Adams, Annalisa Colahan, Ben Colahan, and Connor Hughes. Please also consider going to Apple Podcasts to rate and or review us, Reductio Adventures and Ideas. That'd be a huge help. Until next time, I'm Andrew Lavin, and this has been a production of Inverted Spectrum Media.